Appreciate Mike and um, reading the Word and helping us think through that. Um, I too am thankful for all of you and thankful to be with you today and get to worship with you. This is our first Lord's Day gathering of 2022. Many of you may be right now taking advantage of that transition between one year to the next to do some reflection about your life, to do some goal setting. I think that's a good practice to routinely consider where you are compared to where you want to be and then establish a plan of how you want to reach your goals. Sometimes we can probably make a little bit too much of resolutions and sometimes we do those things and uh, we probably put too much emphasis on ourselves and trying to do those in our own power. But I think there's a risk in finding yourself not doing those things, not reflecting and planning, and that risk is to find yourself wandering uh, in both your purpose and your actions. So it's a really good thing to take advantage of this time of year if you are inclined to do so. This is also a time of year when churches tend to focus on things that they feel the Lord may be uh, calling them to do in the new year. And, and I believe that we're blessed at Agape. We've been blessed by God that He has actually been building in us for several years an understanding of the purpose of why we exist right here in, in central Alabama. And we have derived from His Word that we exist for the purpose of loving Him with all of our heart. We have derived from His Word that we exist in order to love others the way Christ loves us. And we have derived from His Word that we are to make disciples. And that we are to do all those things while we rely on God for everything. So when we reflect and set goals as a church, we get to ask questions like, how do we love and worship God more sincerely? We get to ask, how do we love and serve each other better? And we get to ask, How can we be more effective in discipling people, both here in our midst, but also reaching people in our community with the gospel? So we want to think about those things. And in a couple of weeks, we will take a Sunday morning and we will talk about that a little bit more in detail about how we want to go deeper in each of those purposes. But whatever we are found doing this year, whatever the Lord leads us into, I know for certainty that we are called to do it together. And one of the realizations we probably all have, but pastorally, you discover this when you are in leadership, is that there are always challenges that are waiting for a community that has set its face to worship and mission. And many of those challenges are relational. We find ourselves always with the challenge of creating and maintaining relationships in the church that are life-giving, that will build one another up, and relationships in which we can labor together for the gospel. Very unique relationships that we're to have in the church, and they are not easy. And so we continually have to strain and fight for those relationships and to be together, and it requires sacrifice which is not easy. So we often need to be reminded of God's plan for community. And we often need to be reminded 
of how we are to practice gospel living in the church. So if you are here this morning and you're part of agape, then this is specific for how we do that here. But if you are watching this replay or you're here this morning and this is you're not your home church, not where you spend the most of your time, this is true of any community of faith, Christian community of faith that you're a part of. That relationships are hard, but they are part of God's plan for His mission in the world. So we must work on them. So it was on my heart to start this new year, before we began talking about how to go deeper in our purposes, looking at one of the most unique letters in the New Testament. Unique partly because of its length. Like Mike read almost the entire letter to you, just short of a couple of verses. The shortest letter that Paul wrote that we have recorded in the Bible. But it's also unique because it doesn't express doctrine. Or in other words, it is not written to teach doctrine. It it has no commands for the church or instructions for the church like most of Paul's letter. It is a personal letter that the Apostle Paul wrote a friend of his named Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy Roman citizen who lived in the city of Colossae. And he heard the gospel from Paul, likely in Ephesus, because Paul did not start the Colossian church where Philemon lived. So he likely met Paul in Ephesus, and there he heard the gospel, and he was saved under Paul's teaching. And so he goes back home to Colossae, and Philemon begins to live out the gospel and learn what it means to live for Jesus And part of that is, we learn from this letter, that he has offered his home to this new church community, or at least part of it in Colossae. He's offered his home that they can gather there. The new church in a new city didn't often have large meeting places, so they would meet in homes. And being a wealthy man, Philemon had a place that could house the church, so they met in his home. And like many wealthy Romans, Philemon owned bondservants. It is estimated in the first century there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And slavery in that day is not entirely like the slavery that happened in the United States, the atrocity that was slavery here in the 1800s. It wasn't based on race. It was often based on debt. A debt a person could not pay. Sometimes poverty, where they had no way to survive other than to sell themselves and their family to someone who is wealthy and would take care of them and they would work for them, be owned by them. So there's no way around the fact that bond servants were viewed in that day as a commodity. But they were often well-educated, And they often held important responsibilities in households. And they could earn their freedom. And so what we learn is that Philemon had bondservants, and one of them was named Onesimus. And while the details are not really clear, apparently Onesimus robbed Philemon and then fled to Rome to hide, to get lost in this big city and this big population. 
And while he is there in this big city among all of these people, who does Onesimus happen to run into? The Apostle Paul, who is under house arrest in Rome for preaching about Jesus. And Onesimus hears the gospel and he becomes a Christian. And Paul discovers that Onesimus has wronged his friend Philemon and fled his household, which was against Roman law. And so Paul writes this letter to address that conflict. He writes this letter to orchestrate peace and brotherhood between these two men. A very unique letter. And while it doesn't inherently teach doctrine or give instructions, it is obvious that Paul is basing everything that he is saying on theology, on his belief about God and his belief about the gospel. And he is encouraging and exhorting Philemon based on gospel principles. And so we're going to look at this letter today and next week, and next week we'll look more closely at some of the the way that Paul encourages Philemon. But for today, what I want us to do is I want us to see three gospel themes that come out in this letter to Philemon. And then I want us to think about how we apply these three themes in our own lives, especially as we are continually trying to seek our own peace in the church and life-giving relationships in the church. Because conflict between those who are Christians is not unique to Philemon and Onesimus, although their particular situation may be unique. So the first theme that I want us to look at, and if you're a note-taker and you have one of the worship guides, then we're going to... you can. Fill in these blanks if you like. Let me also say that if you're visiting with us this morning or if you are here continually and you need a Bible, if you don't have a good study Bible, we'd love to offer you one today as a gift from our church. So just see me or you can see Nick before you leave today. We'd love to gift you with a copy of God's Word. First is the theme of providence. It is so clear in the Bible It is so clear in this letter to Philemon, the theme of providence. God works even through sin to bring about good for His people. The idea of providence is that God is ultimately in control of everything. And that God is ultimately working And He is ultimately influencing everything that happens in our lives. And so, of course, the question becomes, well, what about the bad things? What about sinful things? And the idea of providence is God is working even through sin to bring about good for His people. Now, it's very, very important when you think about providence that you understand that doesn't mean God Himself sins. It doesn't mean that God does evil. He does not. It doesn't mean that evil originates from God. It does not. But it does mean, as we talked about at our Christmas Eve service, that God is sovereign, even over darkness. 
It means that God is in control of every circumstance. And He is so powerful and so sovereign that He can even use sin to bring about His purposes. There are many examples of this in the Bible. You may recall in Genesis, a man named Joseph. In the story of the the colorful robe that was given by Joseph from his father. He was a favored child in a large household. Some of you who have large households, you you assume that there is a favored child and you are not it. It is clear in the Bible that Joseph was the favored child and he was hated by his brothers and his brothers plotted to kill him. But ultimately they decided not to kill him. They would be kind to him and just sell him into slavery. And there he spends years and years and years suffering unjustly in slavery and ultimately prison, not because of anything he has done. But as the story goes, eventually Joseph finds himself in favor of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he becomes the second in charge of the entire nation. How? Providence. And his brothers end up in front of him because there's a famine in the land and they need food and there's food in Egypt. And so Joseph is in charge of distributing the food. And so here come these brothers, these men who years and years and years ago sold him into slavery and treated him unjustly. You talk about power. The power to crush your enemy. And in Genesis 45.5, Joseph speaks to his brothers who have broken down in front of him when they realize it's him. And the Bible says he comforts them. And he comforts them with these words. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Don't be distressed or angry because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. His brothers were guilty of sin. What they did against him was sinful. Even so, in that moment, Joseph doesn't stress their guilt. He stresses that it was God who was working even through their sin to bring about His purposes. Because in saving those brothers, He saved the Jewish people from whom would come the Savior of the world who would save all of us who believed in Him. And Joseph so believed the providence of God that he was able to say to those who sold him in slavery so that he ended up in Egypt, he was able to say to them, God sent me here. Now look at Philemon and what Paul says to him in verse 15. He says to him, perhaps, Philemon, this is why Onesimus parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. 
As difficult of a time as we might have with the idea of indentured servitude, the fact is it was a cultural reality in the first century that Christians were working in. And Philemon was no doubt focused on the guilt of Onesimus. Not only had he broken the law and fled from him after they had some type of an agreement about what he would do, whether Onesimus owed him money beforehand or maybe his family was sold to Philemon's and so he could support him. Regardless, even after that, when Onesimus robbed him as he was fleeing him, he would be focused on all of the guilt that Onesimus had done, but Paul, regardless of those things, reorients his thinking. And in in essence, what Paul says to him is, Philemon, can you not see God's providence here? Can you not see God's providence in Onesimus coming to me in all of Rome? Of all the places he could have went, of all the people he could have ran into, I am under house arrest and Onesimus who ran from you to flee to this city and hide finds his way to me and he hears the gospel and he's saved. It's as if Paul is saying, Philemon, can you not stop and realize that while, yes, he is guilty, it is God who ultimately planned to work through his guilt for good. Namely, that he might be saved and that your connection with Him might be changed forever. Providence. And this idea of changed relationship brings us to these additional themes of this letter, which are both people related. First of all, we see the theme of relationships. The Gospel transforms how we relate to all of the people in our lives, especially the church. The gospel transforms how we relate to all people in our lives, especially the church. Now certainly the gospel transforms how we relate to people who are not saved. We talked about this many times before, but sometimes we find ourselves getting angry at people who aren't saved because they sin. Failing to realize that they sin because they're not saved. The Gospel teaches us to relate to people by where they are in Christ. And if they are not in Christ, their greatest need is not for them to start following some checklist of obedience. Their greatest need is to come to know Jesus in which they will repent of their sin and began to follow Him. But we relate to them based on the fact that they need Christ. And even more so when it comes to the church and how we relate to one another. In verse 17, Paul makes this expectation that he has for Philemon clear. He says, Receive him as you would receive me. Now I want you to imagine how Paul would, excuse me, how Philemon would receive Paul. If Paul showed up at his house, this man 
in whom Philemon loved because he had come to know the gospel under him, maybe a spiritual father to him. If Paul showed up at Philemon's house, how would Philemon treat him? And Paul tells Philemon, you should treat Onesimus that same way when he returns. The man who wronged you and robbed you, receive him like you would receive me. Paul expects Philemon to forgive him, but he expects him to go beyond forgiveness and embrace him in an entirely new relational ethic. Philemon, before you related to Onesimus as your indentured servant, from now on, he is your brother. Whether or not his legal status would change, and it's debated among people whether Paul expected Philemon to immediately free Onesimus, but regardless, he could no longer see him only in the light of a bondservant. He had to see him in the light of the Gospel. He was his brother. We read this morning in Colossians 3, Lamar opened us up in that reading. And in Colossians 3, we are told Christ is all and in all. In other words, Christ is in all of His people. Across this room right now, if you are a believer, Christ is in you. And that reality is the great equalizer in the church. There are, Paul says in Colossians, no more human distinctions that should divide us. We should no longer look at people and say, well, they're Greek and I'm a Jew. Or they're this race and I'm that race. We should no longer look at people and say, well, they're uncircumcised and I'm circumcised, which was a religious distinction in that day. Or they're a slave and I'm a free man or I'm a master. Paul says those distinctions and divides no longer characterize your relationships. He's not saying that those things are not true. You don't stop belonging to your ethnicity when you come to know Christ. You may not always, for people who were bondservants and masters, that status may not change. But what Paul was saying was in the community of believers, those things are no longer how we relate to one another. We are all fellow travelers to the throne of grace. And we are all equal before God in both our need and our standing. I cannot stress this with us in this church enough. No label of any kind should divide us. And I don't think I have to spend a lot of time talking about what kind of labels we put on people today that would divide the church. But there is not one label that should divide us. Because those things mean nothing in the light of the reality that Christ is in all of us. And if we care about those labels so much that they divide us, that means we don't care that much about the reality that Christ is in us. The people in this community and the people in any Christian community are first and foremost your co-heirs. 
And that is how you're to relate to them. You are to work to find the common ground that is in Christ. The other secondary issues that may divide you, you work through them, but you do not let them become distinctions of disunity. Even if you have to lay down your label. Even if you have to lay down what it is that you hold so dear. Christ is all and in all. It would have been unheard of in that Roman culture to treat a bondservant with that level of esteem. Unheard of. People who say that the Bible promotes slavery or doesn't do anything to end slavery are not not looking at what the Bible is teaching. Unheard of to say to a master, that bondservant is your equal. Paul is making his plea based on the ethics of the kingdom of Christ, which expects us to love our fellow Christians, no matter their label. And even if they've hurt us, which brings us to the third theme of reconciliation. The theme of reconciliation, which is coming to peace with someone who has hurt you. And if you do that, know that coming to peace with someone who has hurt you will require a sacrifice of trust. Reconciliation will require a sacrifice of of trust. Now I am, I'm primarily thinking right now about reconciliation among brothers and sisters in a church. There's a lot of things that we can talk about when it comes to forgiveness. But what I'm thinking about here is reconciliation between true believers. Not just someone who attends church with you, but those who are true believers in Jesus. And when I say sacrifice of trust, I am thinking primarily of the trust that you will have to put in God when you seek reconciliation with a Christian who has harmed you. Or perhaps when you seek reconciliation with a Christian that perhaps you have harmed. And when you trust God by seeking reconciliation with a Christian who has harmed you, that is an act of worship. Paul is asking a lot of both of these men. He is asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus and let go of all the wrongs that he may have done to him and treat him as an equal in the Lord. And I imagine that at least one of the thoughts that Philemon would have is what about all my other bondservants? What about all these other bondservants that work for me? What is going to happen if they see this bondservant robbed me and fled and I bring him back into my household not as a bondservant under prosecution or punishment, but as my equal in the Lord? Would that not offer the opportunity for those other bondservants to say, if he can get away with it, I can get away with it. So I'll do it. 
But Paul is expressing to Philemon, it's worth the risk. He says about Onesimus in verse 12 and 13, I am sending Onesimus back to you. And in doing so, I am sending you my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me. I would have been glad to keep him that he might serve me during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul is not talking there about him becoming his physical bondservant and slave, but rather that Onesimus might become a fellow brother who is serving him the way Paul has served Onesimus. And that he might become a co-laborer with me here while I'm under house arrest in Rome. In other words, Paul believes God is working in Onesimus and that he can see it. So much so that he says, this man carries my heart. I love him. I know you didn't find him to be very useful. He said that earlier in the letter. And by the way, that was kind of a play on words because the name Onesimus means useful. So Paul was saying, I know you didn't really find this man to live up to his name, but he is living up to his name. You will find him useful now, and I'm sending him back to you. You can trust that God is doing a work in him, and you need to honor that work. But he's also asking a lot of Onesimus. Probably not quite as clear in this letter, but by law, Onesimus could have been arrested, He could have been tried, and in some circumstances, he could have been executed. And so here Paul is saying to Onesimus, you have my heart. I love you. Go back to Philemon. Go back to the man who you robbed. The man who by law could have you arrested. The man who by law could cause you great harm. Go back to Him. And no doubt what Paul is saying is, Onesimus, there is fruit that goes with repentance. There is a way that you live. And doing the right thing when you become a Christian. And Onesimus, you can trust God to take care of you. You can trust that God will move in Philemon's heart to treat you rightly. For these brothers to be reconciled, they would both need to offer God a sacrifice of trust. Not primarily trusting in one another, but trusting in God and His Spirit working in one another. I found myself in a conflict one time with a, with a fellow brother. And it was a hard conflict. It was one that we were having a very difficult time working through, personality-wise. And I felt wronged by him, and he felt wronged by me. And, and I remember we were having a very long conversation trying to work through some of these issues. And I remember him looking at me, and, and, and he, he said something to me, and, and I, I pointed out to him that, I wasn't, I just wasn't sure that I could believe that. And I, I just remember him looking at me and saying, you are going to have to trust the Spirit of God in me. And it was this profound moment where I thought, you are, you're exactly right. I, I don't really trust you. That is the depth that we had reached in our conflict. 
but I can trust the Spirit of God. I do believe that you're a brother. I do believe the Spirit of God is in you, and I trust the Spirit of God. Paul is saying that to these men. The bedrock of reconciliation is that you trust not the person, but you trust God in the person. And Paul says something very interesting and very important and very profound in verse 18 and 19. He tells Philemon, Philemon, I know Onesimus owes you something. I know Onesimus has robbed from you and he has wronged you. And Onesimus, I'm not asking you to simply overlook that. Onesimus has done evil against you. And he owes you money. And Paul says, Philemon, I'll pay it. I will absorb his debt. If he returns to you and your thought is, what about what you owe me? That you've probably spent getting to Rome and living in Rome. Paul says, I'll pay it. You, you can see my signature. You can see this with my own hand. I'll take care of the debt. I will pay you what is owed so that nothing will stand between you. This will never come up again because I'm going to take care of it. And in that moment, Paul is the place that these men are reconciled to God and each other. He's the mediator. He's the one through which both of these men have come to know Jesus and he's the one in which these two men are now reconciled to each other. And I hope you can see that every bit of that is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Paul. Jesus paid what we owed God. Our debt for our sin, Jesus absorbed it. And He did so that we might be freed from our slavery to sin. Martin Luther observed, we are all Onesimus. We are all enslaved. We all have a debt that we cannot pay God and we have all robbed from God and we have all fled from God. And who is the Paul that we run into? It is the greater Paul. It is Jesus. Jesus is the place that we are reconciled to God. And Jesus doesn't look at God and say, just overlook what they did. Jesus says to God, I'll absorb the debt. I'll pay it. There will be nothing standing between this person and you, Father, because I will absorb the debt they owe you, which is death because of sin. And Jesus did that so that we would be free. And church, that has everything to do with how we treat one another. Because we're not just set free from our slavery to be reconciled with God. We are set free from our slavery that we could bear with one another and forgive one another when we harm one another. 
We look at a fellow brother or sister in Christ who has hurt us, and we don't say, I'm overlooking what you've done. We're saying, Jesus absorbed that debt, and I'm going to let that be enough. I'm not going to require any payment from you for what you have done to me. Because Jesus paid the debt. For us to withhold forgiveness and reconciliation with a fellow Christian who has harmed us is for us to hold a debt over their head that Christ has already paid for. So how do we take these three themes of providence and relationships and reconciliation and how do we apply these as we move into this new year. First of all, I would say to us that every relationship we have in Christ, we should view through a gospel lens. Again, I'm talking about every relationship you have with another Christian. It doesn't matter if they're your children, or your parent, or your spouse, or your employer, or your friend, or a church member. No matter what the worldly relationship If you are both in Christ, Christ is in all, and they are first and foremost your brother and sister in God, and you must see them that way and treat them that way. You must consider how God wants you to love them and how God wants you to relate to them that you might help them grow in their faith and abide in Jesus. As parents, our first and foremost responsibility, we're not trying to raise the next members of our family to carry on our family name or our family inheritance. We are raising people who will stand before Christ one day and we are to ask ourselves, how do I help them abide in Jesus? And children, as they grow, should ask that of their parents. We should relate to our spouse that way. Not just what's fair to me or how do we, how do we live together, but how do we serve one another to help one another grow toward Christ? Because they're first and foremost my Christian brother or sister. What does God want me to do in this person's life that I might encourage them and strengthen them spiritually? If I'm honest, I don't really like this person that much. Hopefully we're not talking about spouse or family, but maybe someone that we work with or we go to church with. You know what? Our personalities not necessarily get along. Not the first person I would hang out with. But they're my brother. They're my sister. How do I help them grow in Christ? And with that mindset, even when we take on that mindset, the the reality is we're going to offend one another. We are going to wrong one another. Please hear me say that. You will be offended by people you go to church with. And just to let you know, if you go somewhere else, you will find people there and they will eventually offend you as well. You will offend people you go to church with. You will wrong one another. It is why God tells us over and over and over in Scripture, bear with one another and forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Because He knew we were going to need to do that. 
And when we have wronged each other, God's call to us is this, be reconciled. Hear me, church, His call to you when a fellow Christian, someone in your church community, when they wrong you, the call is be reconciled. The call isn't just don't fight, get along. The call is be at peace with one another in such a way that you are blessing one another. Be reconciled to each other. And that is hard. And that requires hard work. And that requires us to sit down with people and talk with them and share truth with them and let them share truth with us. And we are to do that because Christ has set us free by His hard work on the cross that we might love and care for one another. If you're at odds with another believer right now, you already know it. And God is calling you to do all you can to make it right. And that will require you to sacrifice trust. Not to them, but to God. Your common ground is Jesus because He absorbed your debt that you might forgive the debt others owe you. And the other thing I want us to apply is in our thoughts is providence. When someone hurts us, the question is, is our faith strong enough to look at that injustice and say, even though they're guilty, maybe God's providence is the primary actor here. God, what are you doing in this situation? God, how are you going to use this for good? Maybe God will answer that. Maybe He won't. But if we can ask those questions and if we can say that when a fellow Christian hurts us and we can turn that trust over to Him, that's worship. You are worshiping your Master when you do that. They may not even respond rightly right away. They may not respond rightly for a very long time. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible for what you do. And that is the mark of a first love where above anything you desire to join with God in what He's doing. So I want to invite the worship team to come back up. You guys can bring the lights down. It would be great. As they do, I want to focus your attention on the prayer focus for this week on the front of your worship guide. We're actually going to spend some time as the worship team plays in just a moment as they're as we're singing together. I want to ask you to do this dual activity of worshiping through song and worshiping through prayer. Let me encourage us. This isn't just that moment where we're getting ready to transition out of here. We want to respond to God's word. And we want to pray as we sing. For this week's prayer focus, which shows Hebrews 3.15, a very simple passage in words, not simple to apply necessarily, but the instruction is this. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't 
We always have the choice when God speaks. He may speak through something we read. He may speak through Scripture or a devotion. He may speak through someone who's teaching or sharing. He may speak through a song. He may speak through a still small voice in your mind or your heart that lines with His Word. And the challenge when God speaks is always the same. How am I going to respond? If your house is like my house, that's probably a frequently asked question. Hey, are you listening to me? When God speaks, that's the question before us. Are you listening? And you have two choices. Hear what He's saying and move toward Him. Softening your heart or push back from what He's saying. Get your mind on something else. Deal with it later, and in doing so, harden your heart. I want us as a church today and this week to pray that as we begin this new year, God would speak. It's not something we just expect. We can in faith, but we don't want to take that for granted. Pray that God would speak and that we would hear. And that when He speaks, that we would obey. That we would soften our heart. And that we would trust Him in worship. That that obedience would bear much fruit. So this morning as we sing together, would you ask God to speak to you? Or if He already has, would you listen? It might be that you can obey what He's saying this very moment. If you can, do so. It may be that you can't obey what He's saying in this moment because you're constrained by time and place of where you are. But I would encourage you to make your plan. I would encourage you to confess it to someone else what you need to do so they can hold you accountable. It is so important to respond when God speaks. And if today you need prayer, if you need something to be prayed for, we're not going to have prayer partners this morning, but you're welcome to walk where I over to where I am and I will pray for you or I will find someone to pray for you. Father, I ask You today, knowing that we are all Onesimus, that You would free us from our sins. If there is anyone in this room, God, who is not saved, who does not know You, would You let today be the day that they find rescue in Jesus, that they believe that they are enslaved to sin and that Christ can free them and that they would do what Your Word says. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would You let today be the day of salvation? God, they may not even know what to say. It's okay if from their heart they cry out for rescue. And then God, would You give them the courage to find someone in this room or to come to a leader and let them know that they've cried out to You. God, we're all Onesimus. God, free us from the bondage of sin and the guilt of sin. 
Help us know that Jesus has absorbed our debt. We do not stand before You condemned if we're in Christ. And we do not have to feel guilty for what we've done. Because Jesus has paid it all. And God, help us in this room to have life-giving relationships. To forgive one another. Because God, we're going to harm one another. I'm going to offend people. People are going to offend me. That is going to happen. And God, whatever You're calling us into this year, and I, I believe, God, You have good things for us. I hope You have good things for us. But God, whatever it is, we, we've got to do it together. And we can't do it together, God, if we're divided. If we've let labels and distinctions rise up and separate us, God, help us to overcome those things and see one another only in Christ because Christ is all and He's in all. God, help us to forgive and be reconciled. God, it is hard. But God, help us do the hard work because Jesus has done all the hard work for us on the cross. God, please help this church. And please help the people, God, who may be here or hear this, who, who, who won't call this church home, but help them where they do call church home to live out what You have spoken today. God, we love You and we need You. Help us, God, to worship. In Christ's name, Amen.